from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. Okay, I want to pull all our attention forward. I'm delighted that we're all here together to watch this film and talk about this subject. Um, so first of all, I'm Ryan. I'm a professor here in the physics and oncology departments, and I also spend some of my spare time studying obstetric practices in the U.S. from a uh, bioethics and um, evidence-based uh, perspective. Uh, other logistics, there are restrooms out that door and kind of down the hall, so if anyone needs, you can take a restroom break. There's also refreshments back there. Feel free to take care of your human needs as they occur. Uh, if you would be willing to turn your cell phones off, or at least into silent mode, I think that'll you know, make for a more fun viewing experience for everyone. Um, after the show, we'll have a little panel discussion with myself, Eliyahu, who is the director of the film, and Rabbi Biber, who has joined us. He is the rabbi of Mechar, the uh, Washington uh, secular humanist um, group, I don't know, <laughs> uh, temple, what, what do you call it? Congregation. Congregation, thank you. Congregation <laughs> That's cool. Um, there will be, there's also DVDs for sale in the back of the room, and you have the option of making a donation for Eliyahu. He's traveling around the country on his own funds, and as you might know, that the, uh, the wages of artists are low. And so, <laughs> so um, I'll invite him to make a plug for that again. Thank you uh, for all the co-organizers. Ashley, who couldn't be here tonight, Natalie, um, Joe, Leslie, uh, who couldn't be here from the gender department, gender program, Nadine, and uh, the gender program itself. And of course, thanks to Eliyahu for coming all the way here, and Rabbi Biber for coming all the way here. Um, I'd like to turn it over to you. Thanks so much, uh, Ryan. I want to say a few words of thanks before we get started here. I want to thank uh, Ryan McAllister and all the organizers, Natalie, and everyone who helped put this together. I really appreciate all of your hard work. I want to thank the whole network who's helping to sponsor my journey across the North American continent with this film. Uh, this is our 11th stop out of 30, so quite a ways to go still. Um, but I'm really happy to be here in our nation's capital. Um, after the q and I'm going to show uh, an extended trailer for my next project that I've been working on now for three years. Uh, it's a documentary film about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, it's called The People Without a Land. And uh, then we'll uh, move into the commerce section of the evening. Um, we have DVDs and books for sale. We have cause bracelets. Uh, there's special uh, cut tour pricing for the DVDs. It's $20 for a, a single. And if you buy more than one, it's $15 per unit. We take cash and any major form of credit card. Uh, and you know, I appreciate any donations, as Ryan was saying, um, uh, to uh, help me get across the continent with this film. So thank you all so much for, for coming out. I really appreciate it, and I look forward to talking to you after the film. All right, great. Well, mazel tov. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. That really was. Um, why don't we start with uh, Rabbi, if you could. Oh, sure, sure. If you could uh, introduce yeah. yourself. Um, and just, is this the first time you've seen the film? I saw the online uh, bits that were posted. Um, so my name is uh, Benjamin Biber. I'm a rabbi here in uh, D.C. with a congregation called Machar, which means tomorrow in Hebrew. And it's uh, 
a congregation linked to uh, an international movement of secular humanistic Jews, people who are Jewish culturally, uh, may even see kind of spiritual meanings in uh, Jewishness in the sense of uh, an expansive discourse of meaning um, and uh, would see covenant as something that is something that people create, human beings create covenantal ideals that uh, hopefully stretch us in the right directions and not the wrong ones, uh, but you know, they're, they're big ideas that, you know, Brit Milah, uh, covenant of circumcision is certainly one of those covenantal idea, ideas that goes back to some very ancient sources and there's lots of anthropological debates about the meanings of them, but uh, the rabbis uh, and the other leaders, because there are lay leaders in our mo movement as well, who um, we do not uh, um, engage in circumcision, uh, so that we celebrate all babies uh, being born, girls and boys, and the cer ceremonies are the same for welcoming both girls and boys, and uh, again, into a, a, a poetic kind of covenantal ideal of, you know, love and support, you know, all, we're all born into the world vulnerable and in need of uh, uh, people to love us and take care of us and, uh, and we also end up quite old as I'm discovering with my own parents in similar circumstances and so life's journey takes us through many chapters of vulnerability and we depend upon each other for love and protection and, um, and that extends in this case I would say also to creating a covenant without circumcision. Now, is that the official position of yes. humanist Judaism that, that you don't perform circumcision? We, we, we do not, there's no official place in our movement's philosophy for circumcision. So it's a, it's a parental decision, but the, the, the welcoming ceremony uh, has no place for it. So those are, it's a personal choice. I can't tell you, uh, I don't actually check to see who is, who isn't. Uh, it's really unimportant, actually. Although, uh, you know, if you maybe go to a clothing optional beach in Israel, you might uh, do your own survey uh, there, but uh, it's really immaterial. It's, complete, it's unimportant, it's not mentioned in any way as an aspect of covenantal relationship. So, and I think, I, I would I dare say, uh, I can't speak for all Jews, but I would say that most Jewish people who have any concept of covenant actually focus primarily on how we treat each other that is the most important aspect of, of a covenant that is meaningful for people living today. Is, and, and it's clearly women and men, Jewish people, non-Jewish people, everybody, we're all in this together, folks. And they're really, uh, this, I mean, it's an ancient idea. Uh, and yet I would say it has some merit uh, in that we also all have to live up to some kind of ideals that, that call forth from us, uh, you know, some sacrifices on behalf of each other not sacrifices of children's <clears throat> bits. Uh, I think that's completely absurd at this point in history that, I mean, I, I, you know, I will say that I would not circumcise a child uh, if I was, I was circumcised. I don't hold it against my parents. They didn't have weird rabbis like me around to uh, discuss this with. Um, but that said, I'm not weird in that I think many rabbis actually, if they were going to be honest, uh, would say that circumcision is really an unimportant aspect of Jewish life you know, we just don't check. We don't care. So um, we'll get some more into these issues a little sure, bit I, later. That was more than an intro. No, no, that was a great intro. Thank you very much. Uh, Ryan, can you uh, introduce yourself and talk to people a little bit about how you came to this? Uh, sure. 
<clears throat> so I'm Ryan. I am a professor in the physics and oncology departments. And I've spent a lot of time over the last decade trying to understand obstetrics from a bioethics and an evidence-based practice point of view. Because it, it came to my attention that obstetrics are not actually, the way that physicians are taught in school, the way that a lot of the texts are written, do not correspond with what, what evidence we have. And I'm also kind of a softie, you know, <laughs> so I <clears throat> just, I feel other, others' pain a lot. And so um, I do a, a, a side volunteer work supporting parents and children. And so spending all that time with parents and children, I kept hearing lots of stories and people just open up and that, that actually is part of what brought my attention to the cluster of issues, which includes circumcision. Um, Rabbi, if you could tell me some of your reactions to the film, what you think about it, um, just initial reactions. Well, first of all, I, congratulations in your, your interview uh, work, getting people to really say what they think and, and trying to help everybody see from each of the people's point of view what, what it was that they felt like this meant to them, you know, whether they felt it was meaningful uh, and positive, problematic, uh, damaging. I mean, you really, I think you really helped us to understand a lot these these many different points of view and and that's uh, very challenging so well done in that regard and I think Thank that you. that's really important for us uh, it's to try to understand these different perspectives because in order for us my interest is I think like yours and and like yours trying to help uh, people who would be young parents typically uh, who are struggling with these questions of or would be will be parents uh, what would we what would I do in this situation and then having the insights of these different people's uh, points of view I think is helpful to all of us to consider those uh, those struggles um, and for some people it's a struggle it really is and for other people it, they, they're pulled very strongly in one direction or another and um, either by their own impulses, their own internal dynamics, or by family dynamics and community dynamics. I mean, listening to your father uh, it was very, very interesting. And uh, to get that out of your dad was <clears throat> pretty amazing. I'm not sure if you could get that out of my dad. <laughs> well done. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks. You know, it's sort of, um, it's strange, but in my family, that's kind of how we talk to each other <laughs> in general. And I, when I was making the film, I was kind of like, well, you know, if, if someone could be a fly on the wall, you know, I always had that thought. If someone could be a fly on the wall for this discussion, that would make some very interesting uh, film. And when it came to the subject, I was like, well, you know, I'm going to have a conversation with my dad and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get it on film because this is good stuff. Um, you definitely got the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Ryan, do you have any... Uh, th this may be the first time you've seen the whole film? The first time in its entirety. Yeah. So was that one conversation with your dad that we just saw multiple cuts of? No, actually, I had um, three conversations with my father over the course of a year. You saw bits of two of them. One of them was so um, intense that um, I didn't feel it should be in the film. Um, <laughs> uh, heated and emotional, and um, it, it wasn't adding anything at that point. <laughs> but the, the, you saw pieces of two conversations over the course of the 18 months it took me to make the film. No, I found him very impressive, uh, and your chutzpah very impressive. <laughs> but his ability to like to to stick with you and, and to move, yeah. like he's yeah. a dynamic uh, thinker, and uh, you know he's willing to like evaluate your perspective. Yeah. I, I just admire that. Yeah, it was a very uh, healing experience for the two of us. Um, 
and you know that it would be around the subject like circumcision sort of made it all the more poignant um, I thought and he's been very supportive ever since I finished the film and he's been on a number of panel discussions with me um, even though uh, in his world there are clear social costs to being supportive of this kind of endeavor so yeah um, so I wanted to uh, address something that the rabbi was talking about earlier because I think um, Rabbi Weiber you have a very um, interesting position on this. Uh, yeah. I tried to get a sort of wide plethora of rabbis um, from the different movements in the film to sort of address the issue, and uh, none of them had the perspective that you're bringing tonight, um, which I, I must say is, is rather refreshing. Um, but I, I, I think it's so interesting that, you know, you speak a truth here about the fact that there are really no practical religious ritual consequences. And I'm speaking about this from um, an orthodox perspective, too, to not being circumcised. There are no, I mean, and the strange thing about it, my father is a, an extremely learned man, uh, and some of the rabbis that I have in the film were extremely learned, and they all seem to be under this impression that, um, be, that, not, that being an uncircumcised Jewish male, being an intact Jewish male, brought with it these sorts of severe exclusions from ritual and I looked into this, and what I found was that the only exclusion in Jewish law, even from an Orthodox perspective, for an intact Jewish male is the Paschal Lamb, the Korban Pesach, which hasn't been brought for 2,000 years and won't be, won't be brought again <laughs> until the temple's rebuilt, ostensibly, if it's even brought when the temple's rebuilt or if the temple's rebuilt. So, the, so Let's hope it's not rebuilt. <laughs> well, that, that's going to be... I mean, that's the Third, Fourth, Fifth World War. I mean, that's just ridiculous. The majority of Jewish people have no interest in animal sacrifice ever being um, re, uh, restored um, and see it as barbaric, frankly. Even those of us who aren't vegetarian or vegan, which I am, to be perfectly honest. Um, and um, what we focus on would be so different um, than what our ancient ancestors who had the temple practice and the sacrifices and where this dates from. Um, so I would dare say that, you know, that for example, the American uh, Jewish Identity Survey, which was part of a, an American religious identity survey um, undertaken by the City University of New York, found that half of the uh, Jewish people in the United States self-identify as having a secular worldview, meaning that if they're sick, they typically go to the doctor, they don't pray about it. If they got, you know, a uh, psychological problem, again, instead of praying, they go to see a counselor, a psychologist, somebody who's gonna be able to help them with it. In that manner, if they have a, a legal question, they don't go to the rabbi, but thankfully. They go to a lawyer or a conflict resolution person. I mean, they're, 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 they try to settle matters, you know, using this world uh, methods and the idea of a covenant that is somehow a, has nothing to do with women participating, is just bizarre. And B, that it would only be for Jewish people, also bizarre. I mean, like, let's face it, we're, you know, a very small people, you know, and so whatever covenant we've got going on, unless it's like going to include other people basically all treating each other well, it's meaningless. Um, Ryan, I was wondering if you could address some of the uh, medical and um, sexual function issues that were raised in the film. How do you think, um, have things, uh, the film was completed in 2007, 
And has there been any further research? Um, is there anything that people should know that sort of goes beyond what I covered in the film? Um, sure, yeah, that's what I'm better at. I, I don't understand Judaism as well as you guys do. <laughs> um, but I do, under, that's what my job is, is to understand the science. And so uh, I think after you finished with your film was when the 2007 sensitivity study, Strolls et al. in, in British Journal of Urology came out. So uh, that study was the first one ever to actually use um, a technique called a fine touch probe to determine where in the penis there is, there is sensitivity. And what you find is that the most sensitive regions of the penis are the ones that are removed during the circumcision process it's with the most fine touch sensitivity. It didn't look at temperature. Um, so that's a very important result. And then there was, a, there was sort of like a, a, a response letter that was published to it that said that that wasn't a, uh, that wasn't a valid result because there wasn't statistically significant difference between the, the men who were circumcised and the men who were not. And what I found really interesting about the fact that that, was even, that, that uh, rebuttal was even published was the way they established that result was by ignoring all the parts that the two men, both groups of men, didn't have in common. So that means that they ignored all the parts of the foreskin that were removed and said that the remainder of the penis is about similarly sensitive. So I don't know if you followed all that, but, that, but there's the, so there's this strange thing, like if you were a, a reviewer, a scientific reviewer, your job would be to look at that and say, that's a ridiculous argument, and to throw that, that paper out. But for some reason it got published. Anyway, all that to say that there's a lot of scientific evidence building more and more that supports the, the Cold and Taylor study that was from 1990. Nine. Nine, 1999, that showed all the Meister's corpuscles and things like that. We have other validations of that. Um, there's been some Danish studies also that show men who are circumcised have lower sexual satisfaction and things like that. One of the other things that came up after the film was finished was the big um, sort of randomized control trials that were done in Africa on HIV and circumcision. And I think a lot of people have read about this in the sort of mainstream media, um, even the New York Times. Um, and I was wondering if you could address, um, you know, what is that data? How reliable is it? And, you know, are there problems with it that people should be aware of? Sure. Should I just plug in my slides? <laughs> or is that, that too disruptive? <laughs> like, just, just, just if you can. Okay. Yeah. Um, so there were three uh, controlled trials where they took groups of men in, in three different African countries. And they, they got these volunteer men. They divided them randomly into two groups and they circumcised half of them. And then they just sort of you know, at month, at month 1, 3, uh, 7, 13, and 21, and they planned to go on, but they stopped, they checked to see if they had developed antibodies to HIV. And so then they, they registered how many HIV infections occurred in both groups. And they said, aha, you know, there's a 50% roughly for each study, slower rate of development of HIV in the circumcised groups, in the intervention groups. Right? Ever, anybody not follow that so far? Okay, so that sounds like, whoa, okay, you know, that's really a, an important result. The problem is that the methodology of the studies sort of causes that result to be more, the more likely result in at least, uh, well, several ways. I'll just maybe say two of them because I'm worried about talking too long. Um, I'm a total geek. But if you, uh, what I, so actually there's a, a, an article that I published with, along with others in the American Journal of Preventive Medicine that I can give anyone who wants, and there's my card in the back of the room. Um, Anyway, so one of the problems with the study was that they circumcised the two groups and started the clock, oh, circumcised the one group, not the other, and they started the clock right away, right? So if you got circumcised and you came in at month one, you got in, had HIV antibodies, then you were identified as having got an infection, 
right? Um, so the problem is that with a serial conversion test, you have, you know, what, a three to six month window, right? So some of those infections occurred prior to the actual start of the study. In fact, quite a few of them. If you, if you correct for that, the, the result drops by about 50% already, to only a 25% protection, uh, based on my calculations. Uh, <laughs> the, another problem, which is, I think, very serious, is that when they had, what they did is every time the, the men came in for a clinic visit, either to get tested or to get circumcised or to get checked for, to get a checkup after the circumcision, they would give them condoms and give them a talk about having safe sex. Now, I don't know if anyone else here has had this experience, but right after you go to get tested and you get your, you know, get condoms, you get told to have safe sex, that's when you're more likely to engage in safer sexual practices. Now, the people who were circumcised had two additional clinic visits, one to be circumcised and one to have a follow-up checkup to deal with any complications that occurred. So they had that counseling twice more, and they had the provision of condoms twice more. So those are two of the problems with these studies. Yeah, and I think from an ethical perspective, um, and I think Ryan does a really brilliant job, and you guys should all check out his, his video online. It's called The Elephant in the Hospital. An, el mm -hmm. an Elephant in the Hospital. Right, Circumcision, An Elephant in the Hospital. Um, if, you, if you want to check that out, he does a really good job breaking down some of the methodological flaws with these studies. But my uh, problem from an ethical perspective about the use of these studies and the justification of infant circumcision is that I find it to, to be completely absurd. I mean, I, when I think about the notion of taking these studies that have to do with men who voluntarily went in to get circumcised because they thought it might have some kind of benefit against the transmission of HIV, and I just don't think it's in the same moral universe as forcing this upon an infant who has absolutely no ability to make a decision in the matter and no ability to consent, not to mention the fact that there is absolutely no scientific evidence that infant circumcision does anything to HIV. And in fact, we have contrary population evidence that uh, certain circumcised countries uh, where, where a large percentage of the population are circumcised, such as the United States, have higher rates of HIV than other countries where most of the men are intact and uncircumcised. So that to me is the biggest uh, sort of ethical flaw with the use of this, uh, sort of taking these randomized controlled trials from Africa and sort of trying to infuse new life and give another rationale for our generation about why we continue this, this, uh, this practice. Can I chime in? I actually did uh, AIDS prevention education in Seattle, uh, Seattle King County's uh, AIDS prevention project. And one of the other key questions is uh, the concentration of resources and distribution of resources. Uh, it actually costs a lot less to do educational work and um, provide condoms and other such things broadly than it does to do surgery. Um, you know, so if you want to prevent the most HIV cases, you're going to probably get more, if you will, bang for the buck. Uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, you know, if you if you spend it on educational resources, and frankly, then you do that for, you know, maybe just pre-adolescent uh, boys or something like that. And frankly, even if there was ever any uh, findings that actually circumcision might be helpful, well, a couple things. First of all you know, a, a pre-adolescent boy or an adolescent boy or a young man is much more capable of understanding what's going on, uh, you know, taking other precautions to, to lower disease risks. And frankly, they're in a position of accepting, you know, 
or rejecting whatever course of treatment is offered. Um, and that would seem to be a more moral way of approaching the matter if, you think, if it's to provide a health benefit. Frankly, you know, soap and water does most of the good that you need to do with a baby of whatever type and, you know, whatever young men need to do to protect themselves sexually uh, from disease, uh, it takes education and other, other kinds of resources like condoms. I want to add one more point before we move into the question and answer session about this because I think it's, um, it's worth noting that the push now, and there is a, a push uh, in the American medical establishment among certain people to get Africans to circumcise their men as a so-called HIV reduction strategy. And there's an added element to this, which is just very disturbing to me, which is that, um, you know, there have been campaigns going on now for decades to basically try to eradicate female genital cutting practices from Africa. And so it's so, um, I don't know, there's something so imperialist about sort of saying your cutting practices, no, 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 no. Our cutting practices, they're going to help you. Um, and, of course, there are a number of studies that have demonstrated that, um, you know, circumcised women are at lower risk of contracting HIV, but you never hear about those. You will certainly never hear about those in the U.S. media, um, which is not to suggest I'm not, you know, I would never suggest that or condone female genital cutting practices, but just to say that um, there seems to be a very strong cultural element to uh, promoting the sort of acceptable cutting practice of the United States and Africa and trying to eradicate the African cutting practices. Do you, do you have anything to add to that? About imperialism? Yeah. Well, um, U.S., we're the, the imperialists of imperialism. Do you, do you, I mean, is that something that bothers you also? Do you see that as part of the constellation of what's going on here? Yeah, I'm very concerned. Uh, I'm actually very concerned about the effect on the populations in question when all these, you know, white people come in and say you should you should all be circumcised and then people do that and they hear that that's like a vaccine. I mean the researchers on some of these trials liken them to vaccines, right? right. So you hear vaccine and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm immune, right? Like the measles vaccine, you take that and it's booster and you have a 99% immune, 99% of people who take that can never get measles again, right? So people then think, okay, I don't need to use a condom, I don't need to worry about who I'm having sex with. That seems perilous in terms of like causing a new epidemic or increasing the problems. So there's a whole another ethic about going in and mucking with other cultures and giving them a confused message without understanding that culture, without, um, without even having good science to, to base your intervention on. It, it's so problematic. I, I, just, I find it somewhat upsetting. All right, we're going to move into the question and answer session now. Please wait for Joel to come around with the mic. And if you could also uh, just make sure to um, address whoever it is that you're asking the question to so we can know how to answer. So we don't do like a talking heads thing? You're good. Can you repeat the names how we should uh, refer Rabbi Dr. Ellie. <laughs> no. Please just call me Ryan, okay? I don't And I go by Ben. Ben, Ryan, <laughs> Ellie. Sorry, guys. <laughs> so this isn't um, so much of a question as more of a, a few comments. Um, I just wanted to thank you, first of all, for your video. I found it really really um, well done and um, just want to, I'm Sarah Murray, I'm a, a new physician, a resident, medical resident, um, and this is a topic I've been thinking about a lot actually recently. Um, I'm in a family medicine training program 
which includes um, obstetrics and pediatric care and adult care. And um, my first thought was um, that this isn't just an issue for obstetrics. Um, this is an issue that affects, um, from a provider perspective, um, family physicians, pedi pediatricians, um, OB-GYNs. Um, and what I've observed, at least in my limited experience, is that often um, the providers don't really like doing this procedure either, a lot of them. It's kind of an uncomfortable, even if people don't have ethical qualms about it, it's not like a pleasant or sought after procedure usually that, that I've seen. And again, this is very like very limited. I'm in the beginning of my, my, my training. Um, second thought, um, just another perspective on the data. Um, one issue that I found helpful to think about this um, is that with, with any, um, any clinical study, in medicine, we think about both um, statistical significance and clinical significance. So for a lot of these issues, um, for example, there is, from my reading at least, some established uh, statistical significance for the reductions in urinary tract infections, at least um, at the beginning of life, and some of the, um, and penile cancer. However, in my, in my opinion, it's not clinically significant enough to warrant the procedure. For example, um, to make that a little more clear, um, if something only has a 1% occurrence rate, and you know you can um, establish a statistical significance, meaning it did definitely impact that rate, but it reduced it from 1% to a half of a percent, you know something that's so low occurring already, such as you know penile cancer for men, um, that's that's a distinction that I think can be used in this in this topic especially, um, and then um, just a just to um, restate I guess from that the American Academy of Pediatrics and Family Physicians, their current position papers, which have been reiterated, I think, at least as recently as 2007, um, have not, they have not been in support, they don't recommend this. They don't actively recommend against it, but they don't recommend it. And I've heard that there are some, um, some revisions in the works, for, at least on um, the pediatric side for that. Um, and then um, just one last comment, sorry, um, but um, the arguments that I've heard in favor of this, even among my colleagues and my, my teachers who acknowledge that the, the data is becoming weaker and weaker medically in, in one perspective, they say that, well, yes, but at these at-risk populations, for example, some of the underserved, um, you know, is, is they tend, you know, minority patients in the eastern half of the district um, they'll say that some of the complications, like phimosis, um, where the foreskin is stuck, can, it can happen in adults because of infections and things like that. They say, we see that more, more commonly in our population because families don't teach good hygiene. And that's an, that's an argument that I, I've heard my, um, you know, some of my, my teachers use. Um, and so people are kind of using that as a way to justify it, I think, still. Um, and then also just... Some, for, for example, in my program, it's a, it's a requirement to, be, to do 10 circumcisions um, to, to get your, you know, to be certified in your training. So my thought is, like, we need to affect a system change um, to really get anywhere from the medical um, perspective. And um, I would love to, I'm going to talk to you guys afterwards, hopefully, and maybe get some ideas for how to do that. Thank so, you. sorry for all those. No, no, no. Thank you so much for your comment. And I would love to hear Ryan's response to some of what you just said. So, <laughs> <laughs>
Okay. Well, first, I, if there was ever an opportunity to come talk with any of the groups that you're in, like that's sort of my my shtick, right? Is I just I give scientific lectures about it, and there's lots of Q and A stuff. Um, so I it's I, I want to encourage us all to be wary of hygienic arguments that also contain a discussion of class and race because um, there's a long-standing tradition in our, our country and much of the world of, of mingling racism, classism, and like hygienic arguments. And so I, you know, I have trepidation when I hear those put together. Um, it, sometimes phoimosis, oftentimes actually, phoimosis is a misdiagnosis because of the initio that, that binds the, the foreskin. Uh, sometimes physicians and parents think that because it won't retract, you know, you can't pull it back without the baby yelping, you know, that that's, that's phoimosis. But really that's just the, um, the bonding. And phoimosis can occur as, you know, that's actually, true phoimosis is some kind of scar tissue development that hardens and it won't, it won't pull back. And that, that can be treated with steroidal cream and, and can usually be avoided by, you know, not, um, not causing trauma to the end of the penis. Um, Let's see. Oh, you mentioned urinary tract infections. Most of most people who um, you know argue about urinary tract infections refer to a 1986 paper by um, this Wiswell guy that was mentioned. Uh, I kid you not, that really is his name. And uh, <laughs> um, well, the problem with his study, which was very large, so it was very convincing to a lot of people. The problem with his study was not just the selection bias that was caused by like who was circumcised and who wasn't. Um, but also the fact that the mothers were all told for the, for the uncircumcised boys or the intact boys to retract and wash. And the problem with, with retraction of children who, um, who are intact is what that does is that irritates or tears the senitia and that creates a site for infection. I see nodding, so some people are familiar with this idea. So what we want to do is we want to educate physicians and educate parents to know, like, you only want to use water because you don't want to disrupt the bacterial colonies and you don't want to forcibly retract. It'll, you know, You'll notice when, when your kids retracting on their own, but sometimes it happens even up into puberty and stuff. Um, was that sort of what you were? Yeah. Okay. No, I think that was that was very good. Can I, but thank I, you. Yeah, I, yeah, please. I the cake a little bit. Again, I think that it's important to also think about the concentration of resources. It takes a lot. You can distribute the medical and health, uh, public health resources a lot better using things like basic education for hygiene, and which includes evidently not using soap and I didn't know that. I guess I grew up using soap and water routine. But the thing is that we have new data. So whatever the, the best data, you know, um, support in terms of hygiene education and in terms of making, frankly, clean water available to people yeah. throughout the world, I think, again, you get a lot more health benefit from spending our resources that way than trying to circumcise all baby boys. It's just that would seem like... A, a good investment. I want to add one thing uh, before we go on to the next question about the American Academy of Pediatrics and their uh, position statements on this subject. Um, I'm just supremely disappointed in them. Like, I'm just really, really, like, really, guys? Like, you're going you're gonna to have this wishy-washy, like, clearly there isn't enough medical evidence to justify this practice routinely, and everyone around the world knows that. So why can't you just come out and say that there's an ethical problem with this? Why do you have to sort of pretend like it's a parental choice? It's not a parental choice. There's an ethical problem with making this a parental choice, namely that you're not taking into account the wishes of the individual upon whom the surgery is being performed. Next question, please. 
Uh, yeah, I have two questions. Um, one is for Ryan. It was really interesting what you said about the Africa circumcision studies. Um, and I recently read a study, I think it was 2010, and it was out of a Baltimore clinic. And I'm wondering if you are familiar with that study at all. I, for, to my knowledge, it was the first one that was in the U.S. And so it was kind of saying, yes, we've been able to replicate the Africa studies here in Baltimore. Um, and then I'll just say it all. So my second question is for anybody who knows, I'm wondering um, historically what the role of insurance has been in circumcision and kind of if there was a point at which insurance said, yeah, we're going to pay for this surgical procedure for all babies. And if that, um, to, your, to any of your knowledge, has played a role um, in its growth. Okay. Uh, so the first one... Um, I wasn't aware that there had ever been approved uh, an in-U.S. controlled trial. Are you saying that, that there, as far as you know, there was a trial in Baltimore where they took men and randomized them and circumcised one group? Um, I don't think that they circumcised them. I think they took circumcised and uncircumcised men and oh, compared and them over a longitudinal period of time. Oh, Okay, I haven't seen that study. I've seen many that sort of dot all over the, the spectrum. So I, yeah. I would be interested if you could share that I just that read it like last week, so I'll get your email and I'll send you a link. Yeah, please. I'd like to look at it. Thank you. Insurance? In terms of insurance, I know that I think it's the count is now 18 states do not cover circumcision anymore, uh, Medicaid, Medicare oh. coverage. Um, and I think that uh, I think it has a huge impact on the trend and the rates in this country, when we talk about declining rates of circumcision in the United States, I think one of the major factors that has to be um, looked at is the sort of cutting of Medicare and Medicaid insurance for this. I'm not sure about when it became sort of, uh, you know, an insurance thing. Do you know anything about that, Ryan? No, sorry. Yeah, that's an interesting question that's outside of my um, research so far. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure, but I do know that about 18 states now have have decided to to not cover, and in in truth, it raises sorts of interesting class issues at that point because, uh, and I've heard this from a number of people in the African American community. There's a sort of feeling like, well, I don't want my child to be identifiable as a lower socioeconomic class of person when they're in a gym or in a locker room or something, and so that then ends up becoming a sort of strange kind of motivation for people to get circumcised. Do you by chance know how much the procedure costs, like ballpark, if you were to pay it out of pocket? It varies, um, and obviously a ritual circumciser charges uh, differently than a medical professional, and I think uh, pediatricians charge differently than OBGYNs, but I've seen uh, between 100 and $400 per circ. Um, and there are hospitals, this is very interesting, there are hospitals that will charge insurance companies for circumcisions for every single birth, including girls, even though obviously they're not circumcising the girls. Um, so that's just a weird kind of thing that, that's going on too. Uh, Ali, you said that um, your, you had three conversations with your father and uh, one of them wasn't uh, fit for broadcast. I'd be interested to know which one. Was it the first one that wasn't good? The last one? Somewhere in the middle? It was the second one. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it was, it was the second one, and um, 
there was a lot of um, and you know my father made reference to at the end of the film he said that I had said to him how, how could you have done this to me and I have no recollection of ever asking him that question but I think he interpreted that second conversation as my saying that because it got into a very intense he got into a very defensive place in the second conversation um, and it was very emotionally difficult and you know it was one of those sort of halting conversations with a lot of emotionally charged air and um, yeah so I think that you know that was that second conversation was what he was remembering. One other comment on the um, the medical associations not coming out with a stance one way or the other. I you know I'm a Jew with a lot of doctors in my family, so I think there may be a little bit of not wanting to um, either the leadership who make those decisions or doctors not wanting there to be a stance that they're against their own. Uh, religion, if you will, the people that were in the film. I yeah, think that there's I, something to be said for that. And I think, you know, and I did this thing which, you know, I'm an independent filmmaker so I can get away with this sort of stuff. And I'm Jewish also so I can get away with this sort of stuff. But Len Glick in the film goes through the list of the Jewish names who are prominent in the sort of uh, circumcision uh, uh, circumcision proponents. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I just, I, I knew I was... Um, <laughs> I'm thin ice with that one, but um, I thought it was really important because it wasn't just Len who had told me that. Um, I, uh, a number of the non-Jewish experts that I interviewed for this film said this to me off camera, that it's almost impossible to ignore, but they would never say it publicly because they don't want to appear to be sounding anti-Semitic, but that there is an, uh, a very uh, striking prominence of Jewish physicians in the movement to get uh, circumcision to be a, a normative practice in this country. And I think Len's, I'm totally on board with the way Len put it, and I, th I think he did a marvelous job sort of explaining exactly, um, you know, it's not some sort of cabal or conspiracy, it's just a subconscious sort of desire to have a cultural practice that was, that you'd been ridiculed for for centuries become normative, yeah. And the one guy would take no stand. I, uh, no, I'm not saying that, I'm just not... I don't want to offend the Jews kind of thing. So, I, yeah, I well, the exact same thing. I, I mean, you know, and I hear the sort of mocking tone in your voice about that, but i got to say I much prefer um, his dealing of that to some other intactivists I can think of. <laughs> I think that cultural sensitivity is actually a really important uh, skill that people who are activists and advocates really need to, to invest in um, because there are deep wounds around this subject in the Jewish community, and it needs to be dealt with in a sensitive manner, and um, we shouldn't be negligently insensitive to that side of it. Well, you know, one of the things I think that um, is pretty understandable, uh, and it would happen in any group of parents, is that, you know, parent uh, like the woman who started No Cirk, I'm... Marilyn Milos. Yeah, Marilyn. I mean, you could hear the kind of regret in her voice. Um, and, you know, people want their decisions as parents or in any field of activity validated. And so it's not surprising that there would be a whole dynamic of trying to validate what our parents and our grandparents did, et cetera, et cetera. And then, on the other hand, you know, the doctors who are still doing these procedures trying to validate why they're doing them, that, you know, they have these good intentions, right? And it's supported by medical evidence, right? Well, you know, it's a little dicey. It's really quite dicey. And then when you get into like your father's acknowledgement that there's this kind of 
psychodynamic, I mean, I don't know how Freudian we want to get, but it's like, you know, parenting is, uh, is difficult, is difficult. And uh, we, you know, parents do hurt their children unintentionally sometimes, intentionally sometimes, and that's a very tender subject, as I'm sure all of us were children, some of us are parents, I'm not, but it's like I, in doing therapy with parents and hearing their, their pain from things that they feel they've done that have harmed their children, it's enormous. It's just, it's an enormous weight um, that people feel and they can't get out from underneath it sometimes. And so they're trying to validate some of them. I mean, I don't, I can't say that that's why everybody's doing it, but you know, you see that in so many different areas of life. So why should this be any different? Well, I was just wondering if since 85% of the world does it, how do you really counter that and make the Doesn't. Doesn't. 85, like, yeah. Because one of the things is I'm of Native American descent on both sides of my family. And less than 100 years ago, nobody did it. But since we've been relying entirely on government hospitals, we've begun to do it without having to incur any costs. And I can't think of any Native Americans in the whole country that don't do it. And it's not because of any Jewish religion, it's just because of some kind of tradition, I guess you could say, that people follow when you're born. And I guess how would you stop that from continuing? Yeah, I mean, just to clear up a little bit of confusion, um, the 85% the figure, which is actually probably a little high, it's probably more like 80%, but that figure refers to the number of men who are not circumcised, who are intact in the, in the world, the world over. In the United States... Um, it's very hard to know exactly where we are nationally, but my best estimate is somewhere just a little bit above 50% right now. So there's been a steady decline over the last 10 years. Uh, actually, over the last 30 years, there's been a steady decline. Am I making a mistake here? Is that about right? No, but just to clarify, I think you're saying 50% of newborn boys are being circumcised. That's right. right. The adult in, population, in the United States. Yeah, the adult population, who knows? I mean, I right, yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, yeah, and I want to, on the point of why Americans do it, I think, um, uh, I mean, there are all sorts of bizarre reasons that people give that I don't really take very seriously, like, you know, so he'll look like that or whatever. But I think that the, this has become an embedded, deeply embedded practice in our culture. And, um, I, and Ryan does some great work on this, and he's, some of the new work that he's doing on this is really interesting too. But the idea of examining uh, medical practices that are completely unfounded scientifically and sort of saying, you know, this is us, you know, th these are our cultural biases, hangups, practices, and what does it say about where we're coming from that you have a completely, it's sort of dressed up as science, but when you look a little bit closely or you scratch a bit under the surface, you realize that there's absolutely no scientific justification and it's not science-based medicine. It's just something that we do. Yeah. Yes, I want to thank you for your work. I work in the area of the maternity and women, and uh, two issues. One is uh, when the um, mothers aren't seeing the circumcision that's done in the nursery away. Um, so women uh, are not seeing what is done. And you could see from the page show, the show that, you, that you've given us that the babies cry, they scream. We do know that pain medication can be given during circumcision, and it's often not. And so that's one aspect. If it is being done, why isn't the pain medication given? 
But the other component is that was brought up also by the female rabbi is that you know, women have a lot of power in terms of, of taking care of that, ownership of that baby that they've actually birthed. And I think it has to do with educating young women and men about this and about making choices. And I think we've failed them terribly. So just a couple of points on that subject. Why don't we give babies, and I, the statistics that I've read suggest that more than 50% of uh, circumcisions are done without any kind of anesthetic. And I think this is one of one. Right. Well, they give. I'm about to get into what they what they do. But um. But I I think that this is whiskey. (laughs) This this is one of the more bizarre parts of the circumcision story that I am constantly baffled by. Maybe Ryan has some insight into this. But um, there there are two sides to this. Number one, um, for many many decades. Uh, medical doctors believe that babies didn't feel pain, which is bizarre. And like anyone standing in front of a circumcision or, or watching a baby being circumcised, how could you ever reach that conclusion? But this was a, a very embedded belief in the medical world. And to this day, there are many doctors who believe this. The second part of this is they also believed that if you give the baby um, glucose infused water, sugar water, that somehow that would act as an anesthetic, which to me is like another like red flag going off. Like what really like sugar water is going to act as an anesthetic for this baby. So these, this is a very bizarre side of it. I I don't know. Do you have any more insight than just it's weird? Pharmaceutical grade Kool-Aid, man. (laughs) Sure. Even the EMLA cream is not adequate for amputative surgery. Um, The dorsal penile nerve block is adequate. I mean, it'll make the pain go away at the time, but it'll still hurt for another seven days. But the key isn't to use enough anesthetic, you know. The key is like, you remember what the, um, I forgot her name, but the obstetrician who was also a Mohalet, what she said, Marks. she said like, oh, they don't mind any, you know, they mostly mind just being tied down. And then when she did the cutting, it, you know, the baby was like squealing. And I think that there's, there's just like this, um, this cognitive disconnect where the person actually checks out and they just aren't able to, to you know, receive the fact that the human being there in, in in with is operating on is experiencing pain. So that's the only explanation I can think of to come up with the fact that you can read in medical journals, babies don't feel pain. I've had hundreds of moms tell me that the doctor said, oh, it's practically painless. It's like, you know, clipping a fingernail. And I think um, Paul, Dr. Paul Fleiss um, has said, and I think in a, I, I've seen, I, I think we saw it in the film with Dr. Marks, that the, the, the physicians who do these over and over and over literally stop hearing the crying after a certain point. There's a psychological mechanism that kicks in. I don't know how better to describe it. I'm not a psychologist, but there's some kind of mechanism that kicks in that they literally do not hear the crying. And I think what you saw in the film, that bizarre sort of scene where Dr. Marx was having this dialogue with herself as she was doing it, I think the presence of the camera was for- forcing her for the first time in probably many, many years to actually think about what was going on here. Um, and I think that sort of, um, the camera kind of punctured the defense mechanism that would have normally just suppressed the, the, the crying and, and literally not allowed her to hear the baby crying. Well, she apologized to both to the baby and to the family also, which was interesting. And, uh, and it was interesting too because the way she was miked, I mean, you caught the sound of the gloves going on. So, I mean, just like 
those of us who are just viewing it are so much are aware of her presence. You know, and I will say that was the lamest singing of Sima Tovu Mazato I've ever heard. <laughs> and you could just hear it's like, oh, I think we could all use a little anesthetic too of Sima Tovu Mazato. Man, that didn't look good. Did not look good. Yeah. It, um, do, you, do you feel up for sharing what you told me um, while we're talking today about the scene after that that you did not include in the film? Sure, I'll talk about that. Um, one of the things I did after capturing the circumcision was um, I went for the first diaper change. I was invited. Dr. Mark said, you, well, you, you'd probably want to see the first diaper change. And I was like, okay. It's not even something I'd ever thought about. I was like, <laughs> you know, I had been through what I considered to be an extremely traumatic event. Um, it was ethically challenging to me as a filmmaker to be standing there and holding a camera while this was being done without intervening. Um, and so I was like ready to pack it in. And uh, Dr. Marks was like, well, don't you want to see the first diaper change? And I was like, you know, my instincts as a documentarian were like, okay, you know, better, better to have it than not to have it. Um, and what it ended up being was really horrific. Um, I went in and they did the first diaper change and the baby's penis had inflamed to, and I'm not exaggerating here, between four and five times its normal size. It was bright red, it was swollen, and um, Dr. Marx told the parents not to expect it to look normal for a number of years. Um, and it wasn't because, and what I understood from this uh, encounter, it wasn't because um, she had messed up or botched the circumcision, but just that in her experience as a person who does multiple circumcisions, the penis doesn't look normal for a number of years. Um, I decided not to include it in the film because um, I just felt like it was crossing a line. Um, and I felt like the circumcision scene itself was sort of enough, but um, yeah, I did, that did happen. Yeah. Well, that, that just raises a, one of the ethical problems, I think, that is so central, which is that, you know, there, there's not a huge number of medical accidents, but the fact is that this is an unnecessary surgery. And so the fact that there would be any medical accidents whatsoever raises an enormous ethical question. Why should there be uh, a procedure that is unnecessary, it's, unless it's medically indicated for some specific treatment, it's not necessary, and then that there be any medical risk at all, and that there be pain inflicted at all, and that there be no anesthetic given, at all in 50% of the cases, it's like, what the hell is going on there? And so there's a very deep level of denial and a very deep level of, you know, some sort of willingness to do harm, to cause pain for this specific religious purpose in the case of Jewish people. I mean, we're some, somehow feeling commanded, like the word mitzvah, or is literally a commandment. And so this idea that a deity would command such a thing, well, you know, if you think about deities that commanded sacrifices, and in fact, if you look at the, the Hebrew Bible text, you'll see a place where it, that, uh, it is actually, uh, circumcision is actually compared with uh, the act of sacrificing animals. Um, so, you know, there's this deep sense of a willingness to do harm, you know, for the sake of doing something good, which is to be in this covenant if one is Jewish, or 
to presume to do some sort of per, per, perform some sort of a health benefit, and yet there's all these questions. It's like it's, there's such an indirect link between this act and any health benefit. I mean, all the all the benefits for health could be produced by other means, including circumcision at some much later date if it was indicated. You know, without so many people suffering pain unnecessarily and no medical accidents being necessary at all. Little baby penis, very small. A bigger, you know, male penis, much easier to operate on if you had to do that thing, you know? Lower, lower odds of, of medical error. Yeah, and I, I, I also try to tell people, um, you know, and this I learned when I was in medical school, that the two most um, immunocompromised populations, human populations, are neonates and the elderly. And the notion of creating an artificial open wound on an infant um, it's just dangerous. I mean, it's just dangerous for infection f if for no other reason, especially given the fact that it's so close to, um, you know, the anus and, and it's in this sort of closed environment with a diaper. I mean, it's just like a bad idea. Really bad. Um, yeah, so I was just going back to your, um, we were talking before about pain control in the infant. And um, I mean, I do think that there was a notion and I think that it still exists that, you know, I mean, and I believe that there was a notion that inf you know infants didn't experience pain, but we actually have new data, and and I don't actually know the years or the dates, but I don't think it's like 2010. I mean, we have data that shows that pain control for infants is very important, um, and that um, if pain is not controlled in infants, it actually can go on to predispose them to have um, like uh, difficult times just tolerating stress in general, like in li in life. So um, pain control has actually become um, you know, definitely something that um, is is on the forefront of, of treating infants um, and children too. Um, just going back to that point, um, uh, I, just interesting to think about in terms of um, you know introducing like a, a wound on an infant for potentially no good reason. I'm, I mean, I'm just thinking of other examples where we do something like that. For instance, um, you know, some some people do choose to. Uh, to choose to um, give like uh, ear piercings to their daughters when they're infants, um, and I think it's an interesting point too because, you know, I think that that really is difficult to kind of say. You know, what is the, what is the responsibility of the physician when it comes to, you know, saying well you're deciding something for your child that isn't necessarily medically indicated. Um, so I think that's an interesting point. Something else that's just interesting, I mean, this is just a strange example. Um, it's not very common, but, you know, some, some people are actually born with a sixth finger, um, an extra pinky. And um, we as physicians, and I'm a physician, I for, forgot to mention that, but, um, I mean, it's commonly done in the hospital where the pinky is tied off, the sixth finger, with a thread, and then um, the sixth digit basically eventually, like, necroses off and dies and... Um, and that child is, you know, left with a hand that is relatively normal. But, um, but basically, I mean, that's something that, like, you know, exists in our population. We might not be that aware of it because, you know, many of the infants get this correction done when they're in the hospital. Um, but yeah. See, it could be a huge advantage in piano playing. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, do you want to respond to that at all? Well, thank you both for bringing up the long-term effects of infant pain, which I, I agree that there's evidence for that. And also the question of, like, why do we do these other surgeries? I, I'm also concerned about them. Intersex forced gender assignment surgery, which, you know, is a smaller group of people, but is a very radical surgery. Um, yeah, we do a lot of things for social convention. 
and I hope I hope that physicians will um, not see themselves as brokers for social surgeries, but see themselves as you know obligated by their profession to only provide medically justified procedures. I think that um, I think that it's difficult. I think that it's difficult um, to. Like for instance, I do agree that I think the strongest case for for doctors um, against performing circumcision is that it potentially does um, induce risk for infection, bleeding, um, and also it. Um, I mean, according to the data, which I actually haven't reviewed, but I appreciate learning, um, you know, that it does uh, take off a piece of the skin that's that's very sens uh, very sensitive sensitive and is you know has the largest number of receptors on the penis. I think that's important. Um, but I also think that it's difficult for, so besides the health, besides the health consequences, I think that it's difficult, like, for physicians to say, no, we won't do this in some ways because, um, it's so strongly linked to, um, a group of, you know, people's beliefs about what they want. Um, so that kind of comes into the social aspect of things. Like, I think we also need, you know, a movement from the population to kind of, we need more education um, of the population to kind of show the risks and the benefits of this procedure. Um, well, I just want to ask, like, I understand if you're telling me that, you know, if a Jewish person approached you and said, I want this done, um, and I'm doing it for religious reasons. I, I understand what you're saying in that situation. What I don't understand is, um, and I, I'm not trying to attack you, uh, heaven, heaven uh, that's, that's not what I'm trying to do. But I, I, I do want to understand if a person who's got no religious reason for doing this and they, you know, the dad comes to you and he says, well, I want Junior to look like me, which is actually, and I can tell you statistically, that's the most common reason given for circumcisions in this country. Why, as a physician, would you feel not only um, compelled to comply, but why couldn't you say something like, I don't do that? Um, I mean, I actually, well... I think that you would potentially be able to say you don't want to do it, but you would have to say, I will refer you to someone who could do that. I mean, I think that's, I mean, I. Why? Um, why would you be able to, I think the reason why is because I, I mean, I don't think I could necessarily say, oh, your reason is better than your reason, whether it's religious or not religious. Um, but I mean, why couldn't, like, I'm, I just, again, like if I, and I went to medical school, so I had to think about these sorts of things as if, like, you know, I'm going to be a doctor. Sure. Like, if someone came to me and said, or if someone came to you and said, I want you to cut just a little bit off the prepuce of my daughter's clitoris, you know, what would you say to that? Like, I mean, so I think that the social context of this, it's much more acceptable to do that, to do a circumcision than it is to cut, you know, part of the clitoris off. I mean, it's just this, the social context that, like, as physicians, I don't think we can... But if you have no good reason, and, you know, and, I mean, the cultural reasons for female genital cutting extend in certain Muslim cir circles to the religious, and there are people in this country who want to have their daughters circumcised. So would you refer them to a another physician who would do it? Or would you just say, I don't think that's such a great idea and I'm not going to have any part in it? I mean, I wouldn't do, no, I wouldn't refer them to another physician. I would say no. I mean, well, I would, I would ask them, you know, what are your reasons for doing this and kind of delve into that. I guess I, I don't know enough about female, you know, circum, circumcision, circumcision or mutilation um, from what I've read in, in journals. But, um, 
but I guess I think that would be a different circumstance. The other thing is, I also think that healthcare in some ways, and, and maybe this isn't, <laughs> maybe this is disillusioning, but I think that it definitely is like consumer driven in some, in some respects. So for instance, you know, I may not agree with someone's decision to do what, you know, what they want to do. For instance, I think that maybe the risks of some procedure far outweigh or far or far greater than the benefit that this person may receive, maybe on a 90% to 10% scale. And yet, um, I mean, the way that healthcare is right now, it's really about what the patient wants, for instance. If, I mean, and that's interesting. I like the question about Medi Medicare and whether it will pay for circumcision because I think that is key. Like, I think that's actually huge that actually financially will help, will actually make decisions for people. Um, but yeah, so I guess, um, I mean, it really is consumer driven. Like, what do you as a person want that the healthcare system can give, whether or not, you know, it's good for you? Thank you very much for your perspective. I appreciate your sharing. Just a quick thing to add on of the, would you refer, how could you do this? Just one idea of like, that's used in other, other situations in medicine, for example, physicians who don't want to provide an abortion or something like that. They, you don't have to refer necessarily. You could say, here's a list of other colleagues who provide health care. They may or may not provide this service. You can call, you know, you don't have to directly, for example, because you don't want to abandon the patient, but you don't necessarily, I could, I could see, it would be very difficult, I agree, like in this context to do it, but of um, not endorsing it, but just passing on their care to someone and they can take that up this issue with them ethically, I think that would be a way, just an idea. So. Can I, oh, yeah. no, please, please. I just wanted to probe this a bit because I had this conversation that fascinated me with the head of obstetrics here. Um, I asked her in this long, hour long conversation about circumcision and how, how it is that we practice it at this hospital. I asked her who her patient was and she said the mother was. I said, but you're operating on the baby. And she said, well, now you're splitting hairs. And I said, well, I think this is very important, actually. Who do you consider your patient? And so in the, in the discourse that we just heard, I sort of felt like we were treating the, the adult as the patient. And in my opinion, I would like to see physicians recognize the person who they operate on as the, as the patient. And therefore, their only obligation is to that person um, you know, with respect to the circumcision. Or what do you think of that point of view? Well, I mean, um, in, my, in my specialty anyway, we see both as the patient, you know, the mom and the baby. So, mm -hmm. but ideally, yes, you would want to see each one individually as their own, you know, their own patient with their own um, When it's sensible to see a, an infant and the mother as a system, like that's why we don't want to have mother-baby separation. No, absolutely. Well, yeah, and just realistically, realistically, yeah. they're... They are, you know, a unit in some ways. And well, but it also points to the fact that even, I mean, we're having, you know, we're looking at medicine and we're looking at data, scientific data about medical procedures and who, who presents infants for this procedure to be performed. These are social constructions. That's important to see that the, the, the action of a circumcision is a social construction or a deconstruction perhaps. <laughs> But it's, it, it's a, it, we're looking at a procedure that it's not, I mean, it's not medically indicated, right? So there's, we're, we're creating reasons for giving this procedure. Um, and then we also are very careful to avoid what would be construed as anti-Semitism or anti-Jewish bigotry, which does exist in the world, but it also is true that 
it's, it's not true that everything that Jews do is therefore okay. There's plenty of examples of things that are absolutely not okay, and we Jews tell each other that constantly, which is why we're just an eternal pain in the ass for each other. Because um, we're, we're, you know, if you, you want to be told you're wrong, just ask your Jewish friend, like, oh, that's a crazy idea. What are you thinking? Um, rabbis can tell these kinds of jokes. Um, but it's true that, that we're very careful to not want to hurt other people's feelings or say, I don't share your perspective on that. Um, even, even to be in a very neutral way, saying something that is challenging to the customer or the client, you know, uh, it's, we're looking at something that's socially driven versus like saying something like, you know, I don't think that's me medically indicated and I think in fact if we looked at this other procedure that's comparable, we would consider that unwarranted and even pot potentially illegal. Now, which brings up the qu question of the San Francisco, you know, legislation. And I will just say that I do think that, I, I question whether a frontal legal battle is the most likely way that we're gonna see this kind of cultural change happen. I actually, I understand why some people would pursue that, but I would actually say we're actually more likely to elicit a reaction, a mobilization by Jews and Muslims and others who practice this and wanna protect this practice, um, versus we're seeing its decline and we're seeing you know, rabbis like me and others, you know, in other communities saying these practices are not warranted and we're seeing a generational shift away from them. One of the things I think that's also critical is the, um, the uh, growing popularity uh, and I think a rightful popularity of, of natural, the natural medicine and natural childbirth ideas. And I think that this is clearly seen as inconsistent circumcision, um, male infant circumcision, female infant, uh, circumcision or genital mutilation, not consistent with natural childbirth, natural health. Um, to the extent we see within nature patterns of evolved health and wellness, this is clearly not one of them. Inflicting a wound on an infant is clearly not one of those. And so I think we should be careful to say that, well, if we're trying to promote natural health, let's look at, you know, if, if circumcision's ever warranted, it's not warranted at this point in life. Rabbi, if, before we could go on to the next question, I just want to ask you a question because I get this a lot and um, people ask me about Brit Shalom, the ceremony mm -hmm. uh, where it's a non-cutting. covenant of peace. And it's a non-cutting uh, sort of replacement ceremony for right. the traditional circumcision ceremony. And I um, don't have a lot of experience with these. I have never had the pleasure of attending one. Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering if you could talk to um, how common it is, how many have you participated in? Is it something that you think is catching on? Absolutely. My sense is that it's, it's not really hit a sort of point of, you know, this is starting to become much more popular, but I, I think you probably have a better perspective on it Much than I more do. popular, uh, no, but it's uh, certainly the numbers are increasing year by year. I've been a rabbi for 10 years and it's certainly increasing. But that's perhaps because of the fact that I'm out and people know how to find me, and so I'm easily, you know, I'm a vector for, for people to contact. I would say, in talking to my colleagues, I think that they're finding something similar, but they could be similarly vectors of where people know to contact them. I don't know that we have real good data, although I would say that it's consistent with this movement towards natural health, natural ch uh, childbirth, and, uh, you know, natural health care. Um, uh, avoiding of unnecessary medical procedures um, and, I, and a concern for uh, an unnecessary cause of pain 
and suffering, um, moral questions. So the number of them I, I couldn't tell you, honestly, except for that it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hearing more and more people discuss it. Um, so I think that there is some, some increase in, in that. Um, the, I mean, you have a variety from our movement, the, the secular humanistic movement in, in the Jewish world, um, which is, is almost like jazz riffing, if you will, on the tradition. We use creative liturgy that is ba taking these, these kinds of rituals like, you know, dedicating a glass of wine, you know, to life, to, to health. That's a typical thing. So whether one says a kiddush, literally a dedication of the wine to the deity or a dedication to, you know, the health of the, the baby and the family and the, the loving community that they're becoming a part of, um, you know, I think that we're taking these tropes, these, these uh, things that people would recognize, and we're, you know, we're riffing on them. We're creating new ways of understanding them and looking at them that I think are more meaningful, frankly. Because I think if you go back to the anthropological roots of why do we dedicate a glass of wine so that the demons of insanity don't take over and cause you to ramble in, into incoherent beat poetry and slice off people's heads with swords, I don't know. That's my guess, is that what that's for, you know, that you want to dedicate dangerous things like wine to good outcomes, not bad ones. But seriously, that is what it comes to. And so we're trying to create good things, make good things happen. So we would wish good things for each child. Um, and I, I mean, I think I would add to that that um, this idea of jazz and riffing is actually very well embedded in the history of the Jewish tradition. The whole concept of midrashic interpretation, the idea of having loose hermeneutics uh, where you really play with and stretch to the point of breaking the texts mm -hmm. and the narratives of the Bible, um, that's rabbinic. So everything is sort of turned inside out, and that's Jewish. Yeah. And so the uh, disobedience, the way you ended your with your, your last statement in the film too, that this is a, it, that, that Abraham was an iconoclast. And this is, that's one of the beauties of the tradition is that we recognize that in every generation we have new idols to break, new, and new truths to be told that break old lies. Let's take the last two questions and then we'll go on to watch the trailer. My question was um, about reactions of people that were in the film how many of them saw it afterwards, in particular the parents and the OB that you filmed the circumcision of, did they see that afterwards? And what types of reactions did you get when they saw the whole thing put together? I think Dr. Marks was at the premiere, as were the Weber Schifrins. Um, and Dr. Marks um, said that if I had, she didn't really have anything to say I would I made sure that she didn't feel that she wasn't offended by the way I portrayed her in the film and she didn't um, and she said that if I wanted to talk to her further about it you know I was welcome but she wasn't offended by her portrayal the Weber Schifrin's were totally cool about the whole thing and they're like yeah it's great and um, they were they weren't uh, perturbed I haven't had extended contact with with those people um, but they did come to the premiere at the Gene Siskel Film Center in Chicago when we showed it and I made sure, and again, this was, again, we talk about the ethics of documentary filmmaking. It's a really, um, I, I liken it to an ethical minefield because it's, it's really, um, you have so many conflicting commitments, right, going on. Um, and I had, certainly in the making of this film, I experienced all of that, you know, the conflicting commitments that I had to myself, to the subject, to my audience, to humanity, to the subjects. Um, in the editing, how are they being portrayed? Am I taking a cheap shot with this cut? Do I, you know, all of these things are so, but I take that 
burden very seriously. Um, and I tried really hard, and it's very important to me that people not feel that I misportrayed them. I do think there's certain things that are fair game. If someone says something that I know to be false, um, I have every right to cut to the correct information after they say that. But um, as long as I'm not misconstruing, misportraying, or in any way sort of making someone look foolish, um, I think I'm doing my job. Let's take our uh, last question. Hi, uh, either Ben or, or Ellie could answer this. I'm <clears throat> in Leonard Glick's book, he uh, says that the majority of Jews in America are so secularized that they actually prefer to take their baby boy to uh, have him be circumcised in a hospital. Um, and he says that actually without the ritual, it's lost all meaning, except to conform with the cosmetic of being circumcised in America. And so it's, there's a certain irony, I think, in that Jews may have had a lot to do with starting medical circumcision in America, and now it's become a cosmetic issue. It's lost all meaning. Uh, I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I mean, I often tell people, um, if you're familiar with, and again, we don't have hard data on this, but I think it's a fair statement to suggest that the vast majority of American Jews have their boys circumcised in a hospital setting or in a non-ritual setting. If you contemplate that for a second and you think about it from a religious perspective, um, what that means is that those boys are being prevented from ever participating in ritual circumcision. Now, there's a, a, a fix that's called hatafat dambrit where you know, a person who didn't have a ritual circumcision, they do a little prick in the circumcision scar and they draw a little bit of blood and they say a blessing, but it's never the ritual of circumcision. And people who really, and I've spoken to rabbis who really care about the ritual of circumcision, the mitzvah of circumcision, and when they hear that most American Jews are having it done in the hospital, they think that's a travesty. Um, and I brought this up, I was asked earlier in the summer to write an op-ed for the Jewish Daily Forward on the situation in San Francisco. And um, I brought this up because I think it's really important to keep in mind when you're contemplating and thinking about who's, you know, the, there's this argument that, that a person's religious rights are being infringed upon if legislation is passed against this ritual. Uh, that's an argument that, that we heard a lot this summer uh, in the mainstream media. Uh, I happen to think the argument's not very sound because I think that one person's religious rights end where another person's body begins. But putting that aside, let's actually focus on whose religious rights are being infringed upon if legislation is passed. And I would argue, and I would posit to you, that the vast majority of American Jews are not having their religious rights infringed upon if legislation is passed against this because they're not doing it for religious reasons. Now, there are American Jews, a minority of American Jews, who do do it for religious reasons, and I divide those people into fundamentalists and non-fundamentalists. Fundamentalists believe that you do what God says, like Hershey Warsh in the film said so eloquently, God told me to do this, I do this, that's what it means to be Jewish, end of story. That's a fraction of a minority of Jews. The rest of the Jewish world accepts as fact that the human enterprise and human ethics play a really important role in the evolution of the Jewish tradition. And those are the people I'm trying to address here. And I'm saying, like, and th that's why I was so disappointed by the liberal rabbis the people, the Donnie Aaron from the reform movement and Daniel Berg from the conservative movement who are supposed to be my liberal heroes. You know, I grew up Orthodox. My liberal heroes, where are you? And I, I approached them and they just, 
they, they totally disappointed me on this subject. But the truth of the matter is that if they were to be true to the principles of the founders of their movements, the reform movement and the conservative movement, they would have as much of a problem with circumcision as I do. One last question. Can I get you with one quick one? Sure. Um, you mentioned, one of you guys mentioned the American Religious Identity Survey. Can you tell me, um, did that survey address what percentage of people change their religion of family origin? I don't know. It, it, you can look at the uh, City University of New York, uh, their demography department. I think 2001 was the first iteration of the study. Um, and the American Jewish Identity Survey is a subset of the whole. But I don't know. It can, I don't know what conversion statistics were in that. Okay, I'm curious about that because one of the things that um, that I come up against frequently when I'm I go to D.C. for the General Integrity Awareness Week demonstration. I've been there the last five years, and I got a very angry. The man wasn't even Jewish. He was way beyond radical, gentleman, ranting and raving and yelling and screaming, and <clears throat> about how this was wrong and illegal and we shouldn't be doing this and that we shouldn't be educating and he was he had a lot of anger but I had said to him and the lady with him how do you feel if we if if Christian parents were to tattoo a cross on their child would you feel that that would be an appropriate thing to do and they instantly recoiled and they said well no that's not okay and I said well so how can you justify circumcision which is a permanent mark on a child's body of its parents religious choice and they went on with irrational justification of that. I mean, they were very compartmentalized in, in their thinking. But I had heard that if there was a figure of about 60% of people had changed, people who identified as religious, about 60% of them had changed their religion of origin. And I was curious if you, there was well, a statistic on that. The younger you get, the, the right. new, younger generations, the data changes. So the, the further back you go, the older people are that are interviewed, the more likely they are to have stayed closer to the religion of their family of origin, and the farther into the into the younger generations you go, the more you find that more people move from their family of origin identification. And of course, they, there's more blended families also in uh, in the younger data set. So, it's just another aspect of questioning for this. You know, do we have the right to mark someone forever with a parent's spiritual religious belief that the child may not may not carry forth with? Honestly, I, I mean, I, I agree with those with your you know questions that, that your arguments pose, I do think that in terms of promoting change, I think that we're a lot more likely, and this is, I mean, this is just going on from my experience as a health educator. I think if you give people positive alternatives, more people will choose those positive alternatives. So if you talk to people more about natural health and uh, natural uh, childbirth and the, the kind of, uh, frankly, absurd proposition of creating an open wound on an infant, you know, when you, n most parents would avoid their infant being, you know, in any way falling down, you know, with a boo-boo, you know, or being exposed to just a lot of people who, during a, a, a cold season. I mean, you know, there's reasonable kind of parenting practices that would, would you think would go in the category of no open wounds, you know, optional on infants, you know. I think that would be a good direction to kind of get people to kind of move in the direction of health because I think that's going to create a more positive uh, kind of field for traction versus like trying to argue people out of their kind of religious and therefore also often, I would say, irrational beliefs and, and 
I mean, sorry guys, I'm not trying to step on anybody's religious toes, but from my vantage point as a humanist, I see a lot of human beliefs, including some of my faith as a humanist in human beings, because that's pretty absurd if you think about it, because we can be such buggers. Um, but, you know, we all have different kinds of faith, and faith is by and large irrational, and yet our goal for health is more rationally driven. We're trying to stay well, stay healthy, and so moving people toward a rational discourse, I think, is probably a more easier way to get people to change behavior. Thank you all so much for your perspectives and sharing, and uh, thank you especially Ryan McAllister. Yeah. Where can people find your work? Um, you can email me, you can Google, uh, the, the one talk on this subject is Circumcision and Elephant in the Hospital, which is on YouTube now, so that's easy to find. And uh, Rabbi, thank you so much for joining us, and where can people learn more about your congregation? Uh, well, Machar is uh, M-A-C-H-A-R uh, dot org, Machar, and uh, you know, you can check in with me through Machar. Uh, I also work as a humanist uh, chaplain and possibly starting a chaplaincy at American University. You could talk me into coming to Georgetown maybe, but um, no, I, I'm happy. You can look me up at Mahar and, and get in touch with me, even if you're not looking for you know, any of uh, what, what our congregation offers, but it's open. You're welcome to come and check it out if you want to see what a bunch of heretic Jews uh, and, and friends look like in, in, in their natural environment. Yeah, and, and again, a mazel tov to you on a terrific uh, project. Really. That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www.cutthefilm.com. <laughs>